welcome to the Art Wife Book Club. I'm your host, Hannah Harley. Hey, Art Wives, and happy absolute new year. 2024. I like it. For me, at least, it's softer and more aesthetically pleasing than 2023. I don't know. I kind of have a prejudice against odd numbers. They're just so harsh in sound and appearance. 2024, it feels gentle. It feels balanced. It feels like somebody who's been to a good therapist and has worked on their reactivity. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, of course you don't know what I mean, because what I'm saying isn't something that's real, except within the confines of my own head. Anyway, speaking of the new year, I'm introducing a new cadence for the pod in 2024 that works in more of the shorts editions in which we look at short form works. So what we're going to do is alternate. One month, we'll read and talk about a novel, a memoir, a book-length work of some kind. And then the next month, we'll look at an essay, a short story, or the lyrics of a song. So by the end of the year, we'll have read six books together and six short-form works together. And as I announced last month, we're starting this cycle with the lyrics to a song. And not just any song, of course but the song Ivy by Taylor Swift from her 2020 album Evermore. Taylor Swift is my favorite writer in any form or genre, hands down, no close competitors. So we're going to be looking at her work a lot in the shorts editions of the pod. Going to be a lot of Taylor Swift, folks, a lot of Taylor Swift. And that's not only because she's so good and I love her and she's an excellent storyteller. It's also because I know from experience that studying different art forms is hugely beneficial for our work. If you take a ceramics class, you'll learn something there that will inform and enhance your writing. If you take up knitting or sewing or painting or cooking, you'll find things in each of those disciplines that relate to your work on the page and can help you deepen or untangle or complicate something you're working through in the written word. And that applies to music and songwriting too, of course. And one of the primary lessons that we as prose writers can take away from studying the work of songwriters is structure. Songs with lyrics very often have a very defined structure, right? It's verse, chorus, verse, chorage, bridge, chorus, or something similar to that. And naturally there are exceptions, but this is generally true. And while we wouldn't necessarily structure an essay or a story using this exact model, though, of course, one could if they wanted to work in a borrowed form. What's valuable here is the idea of structure more broadly. So last month I talked at length about the problems I see come up consistently in work that's submitted to literary magazines. And if you haven't listened to it yet, you can go back and revisit that episode to hear an extended look at one of those main problems, which is withholding information. But another top three issue 
with submitted work that indicates to me that a piece is not ready for publication is work that is not intentionally structured. This is a serious, serious barrier because if you have a great vision, interesting characters, clean and compelling line level writing, but it's not organized purposefully and intelligently, then unfortunately none of those other factors really matter. It kind of nullifies any success at the level of the line if the broad picture is jumbled or ill-conceived. So remember that it's often not enough to have a good idea and then type it out, proofread it, and send it off to a lit mag. And I saw this recently, I decided that I would buck up and try to finish the morning show. And so I picked up with the first episode of the second season, which is where I left off years ago, I guess now. And in it, the Jennifer Aniston character is sitting in her country home, typing out her memoir. And she's typing, typing, and she gets to the quote, last line, and then hits enter and writes end manuscript in capital letters. And it made me laugh so hard because it's such an amateur's idea of what it means to write a book. What often has to happen instead is that we will have a good idea, type it out, cut, copy, and paste various sections into different arrangements, move the beginning to the middle, cut the beginning all together and start in the middle, try chronology and then try flashbacks and then try chronology again, print the pages out and cut the paper and physically move the pieces around, delete certain sections altogether, lengthen and expand other sections, and just generally experiment with various orders and versions until it's not only making sense, but making an impact. The process of getting something ready for publication is almost always very labor intensive, unfortunately. And one thing that I think new writers tend to forget is that structure, order, and proximity are all tools that we can use to create things like resonance, tension, implication in our work. And if we're not using structure to help us do that, then we're relying just on the language itself. And when we rely just on the language itself, that's when we start to overwork the language and we end up with the result that feels overwrought and overwritten or even pedantic or ham-fisted. So instead, let your structure take on some of that task for you. Let the order of things tell its own silent story, in addition to and at the same time as the story that's being explicitly told in the text. And this is done by noticing which pieces are next to each other and what is emerging just from the mere fact of their proximity. How much white space is there or not? And what effect is all of that and more having on the way your work reads? The answer is different for every single piece of work, and there's no way to find out except to try it. And this is where the example of structure in songwriting is useful because you'll hear lots of teachers and artists talk about how constraints allow for freedom. Limitations can be hugely helpful in the creative process because a blank page is often intimidating and overwhelming, but 
a form to fill in is much more inviting. It offers a container. That's what a song is. It's a form to fill in. It's a verse, a chorus, a second verse, and a bridge. And then, of course, there's the musical whatever, whatever to contend with. But in terms of the storytelling, the container already exists. This is why we hear artists talking about giving themselves a shape, a mental image, when they sit down to write. And broad categories like short story or essay, those aren't shapes. That's too expansive. That's the type of writing, but it's not the shape that it's going to fill. Shapes are more literal, like literally you might hear someone say, oh, I organized this essay like a six-pointed star, or I wrote a short story abecedarian, or I wrote my book like a labyrinth, or a Rubik's Cube, or a slinky, or whatever. And that shape is usually not apparent to the reader. It's often completely invisible to us, and we only know about it if we hear the writer talk about their process. Rather, the purpose those shapes serve is to give the writer a framework to fill in. And then what the reader experiences is just that kind of subconscious, calm, comforting feeling of being able to tell that the writer has taken care with their work, that the way that they've written is intentional and not incidental. That's all that matters for the reader. We don't need to know about the shape necessarily. And sometimes it's better not to because it can end up feeling a little too gimmicky if the shape is too forward or prioritized. And in fact, I know I said earlier that we as prose writers usually won't use the exact songwriting structure in our work, but the more I'm thinking about it, the more I actually like the idea of using a basic song structure to organize an essay or a book. Like, let's actually look at that. So the first verse is the introduction, the character building, the world building, the setting. And then we get to the chorus, which is the central preoccupation. It's the theme, the obsession, the hurdle, the jewel that's being sought. And then we move to the second verse, which is the development, the deepening. It's where we build on what's been established so far. But then we return to the chorus, and in prose that doesn't necessarily mean word-for-word word repeating like it does in a song, but all good work has repetition and revisiting in it. And I'd say there should be a handful of instances in almost every piece of work in which you as the writer return to your story's central preoccupation and re-examine it, review it from another angle, worry it like a stone. But then comes the bridge, and this is kind of like the climax in traditional plot structure. This is where things change. This is where something demands attention. It's the place where we're forced to contend, where something comes to a head. And then we have the chorus again, and this is where we get the chance to experience that central preoccupation anew with new perspective, new information. So. If you were setting out to write and you wanted to use the idea of a song as your structure, I think that puts you in a really good place, actually. It, it would offer a really useful framework. So before we dive into the lyrics of Ivy, I will say that the intention here is to look at the craft of Taylor Swift's writing, just like we do for all the other writers that we talk about. This isn't about dissecting her personal life or identifying Easter eggs or anything like that, because 
there are plenty, plenty of places to go for that sort of commentary. And also, like, I know Taylor often invites us as fans into her personal life with her Easter eggs, etc. But I don't know, I sometimes feel like it's kind of invasive and weird to do that kind of scrutinizing. And I don't want to do it. So I won't. (laughs) And that's not our concern on a podcast about writing anyway. Instead, we'll be talking about these lyrics at face value as a product of artistry, just like we do with all the other writers we look at on this pod, rather than working to connect any of the lyrics with events that may or may not have happened in Taylor's life. Um, And also, I don't know a goddamn thing about music, so this isn't going to be that either. If you just assume that when it comes to talking about any musical elements, I'm going to be dumb, if you can just expect that, we'll be fine. All right, so we've established why we're looking at song lyrics in this podcast about writing, but why are we starting with this song particularly? Well, first of all, it's a winter song, and I love a seasonally thematic situation, but also because Taylor in this song creates a strong sense of atmosphere, which is a really useful skill to have as a writer, the ability to create a specific and distinct and memorable mood, a felt sense that accompanies your story. So that's something I want us to explore together and kind of interrogate how she accomplishes that. And then also because she uses really original language and imagery to talk about her subject matter here. And I think this song is a great example of Taylor's storytelling abilities. So to get us started, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire song, and I'm going to try really hard not to slip into cringy poetry voice while doing it, so wish me luck. Ivy by Taylor Swift How's one to know I'd meet you where the spirit meets the bones in a faith-forgotten land? In from the snow, your touch brought forth an incandescent glow, tarnished but so grand. And the old widow goes to the stone every day, but I don't. I just sit here and wait, grieving for the living. Oh, goddamn, my pain fits in the palm of your freezing hand, taking mine, but it's been promised to another. Oh, I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland. My house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered in you. I wish to know the fatal flaw that makes you long to be magnificently cursed. He's in the room. Your opal eyes are all I wish to see. He wants what's only yours. Goddamn, my pain fits in the palm of your freezing hand. Taking mine, but it's been promised to another. I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland. My house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered. Clover blooms in the fields, spring breaks loose, the time is near. What would he do if he found us out? Crescent moon, coast is clear, spring breaks loose, but so does fear. He's going to burn this house to the ground. How's one to know I'd live and die for moments that we stole on begged and borrowed time? So tell me to run or dare to sit and watch what will become and drink my husband's wine. 
God damn, my pain fits in the palm of your freezing hand, taking mine, but it's been promised to another. I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland, my house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered in you. I'm covered in you. So yeah, it's a fire. It's a goddamn blaze in the dark and you started it. You started it. So yeah, it's a war. It's the goddamn fight of my life and you started it. You started it. I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland. My house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered in you. Okay, before we dive in, listen, I want to disclaim this a little bit because songwriters can get away with a little more melodrama, I think. Like, I I wouldn't, if you're a prose writer, I wouldn't recommend that you write a line like, your touch brought forth an incandescent glow, tarnished but so grand. It's it's a little heavy-handed, and it would really land with a clunk on the page most times, but... When it's sung, there's so much else going on. There's the music, the quality of the vocals, the production, that the lyrics are a little more hidden. They're couched in everything that's happening around them. So they're not quite as central and solitary and not, frankly, not quite as apparent as they would be on uh, written on a page. So when we look at songwriting to inform our prose writing, I think the best way to do it is to look at it for structure and for imagery. So knowing that, let's get into it. Now, I mentioned at the top that for me, this is a really atmospheric song. It evokes a really strong both felt sense and visual imagery. And for me, that's a foggy green, kind of dark green overcast landscape. Like it feels like the Banshees of Inisharan or something, except maybe not rolling hills so much as forest. Like we're situated on the edge of a tangled, dense forest. And even though this song is on Evermore, there's also something about it that feels ancient, like a fable or like folklore, right? Because Taylor has several songs about infidelity in her catalog, but Even though a song like Illicit Affairs is actually on the Folklore album, that song feels very tethered to current day. It feels like the story is taking place in a modern setting in that one. But this song feels like it's set in a different century even. Like, it feels like it's a storybook. Like, when she has scenes that are set inside the house, I imagine them as lit by candlelight. Even though none of that is in the song itself, none of that is in the language or the descriptions. Instead, it's the emergent quality that manifests because the writer is making consistent and considered choices. So how does Taylor create this atmosphere? Let's tease that out. So it starts really with the second and third lines. Quote, I'd meet you where the spirit meets the bones in a faith-forgotten land. I mean, for starters, just simply calling a place a land is very fairy tale, like once upon a time in a land far, far away. But also, I'd meet you where the spirit meets the bones. This gives us an emotional intensity right away, for sure. We know this is no passing encounter. There's no small talk here. But also, the word spirit does bring in a sort of misty feeling, and the word bone or bones is so evocative of fairy tales. There are tons of them about bones, skeletons, flesh, physical forms. 
And then a few lines later, we get, quote, the old widow goes to the stone every day. And this is another allegorical type categorization or characterization. There's the specificity of the phrase old widow rather than just old woman. And the fact that there's something she does every day, that kind of repetition is something we get in fables all the time, repeat behavior. And then from there in the second verse, we have this line, quote, I wish to know the fatal flaw that makes you long to be magnificently cursed. And again, I wouldn't recommend writing a line like that in prose. It's, you know, it's a lot, but I'm bringing it up here because what's more fairy tale coded than a curse? Literally nothing. Fatal flaws too, honestly. And then there's the attention to the natural environment and the elements throughout this song. We hear about stones, stone houses, and ivy, of course, but we also get snow, spring, a crescent moon, fields, clover blooms, and fire. So the choices are consistent all the way throughout, which is one of the main reasons it's effective. And this shows us that when we choose our language and our images with care, then we actually get to say less. We're creating an environment in which the reader gets to feel something rather than telling the reader how they're supposed to feel. And that's often more effective as we know from experience. And we can apply this to our own writing in a number of ways. If say you have a piece you've written, but it hasn't yet captured the mood you'd hoped for, do this exercise, look through your language and pull out some of the key phrases and descriptors you're using and see if they're one, consistent and intentional, and two, evocative of the mood you're gesturing toward. You can also, at any point in the process, make a sort of cloud or brainstorm of words, phrases, ideas that are reminiscent of the mood you want. And you don't necessarily have to use all those words from your brainstorm in your final, but they can help set the tone. In my regular day job, I work in health education writing, and our goal in that type of work is to get the highest chance for the highest possible comprehension by the highest possible number of people across a wide range of literacy groups and literacy levels. So we want the highest possible number of people to accurately understand the literature so that they can then understand their symptom group or how to use their medication or how to have safer sex or whatever the case may be. And in that type of work, we think about this a lot. Like if we're writing something and using the word utilize instead of use, like why? If we're using the word verdant when we could use green, like don't do that because the meaning is similar, but the comprehension rates are going to drop significantly or go up significantly depending on the word choice. And in literary arts, of course, the concerns are different than that, but we can still use those principles to make our work more effective. For instance, if you write the sentence, the old lady visits her grave a lot, when you could write, the old widow goes to the stone every day, what changes? And to be clear, one isn't right and one isn't wrong inherently. One is right for one mood and one is right for another mood. So you have to get clear about what it is you're wanting to create and then you make those kinds of choices accordingly.
your aims will be different. They won't be the same necessarily as Taylor's here in this song. Your mood doesn't have to be moody like it is in Ivy. It can be fucking Disneyland or anything in between. And also a mood can shift over the course of a work as well. So when I talk about consistency, I'm not necessarily talking about a straitjacket around the entire project from beginning to end. I'm talking about clear intention with language throughout and a conscious awareness of when shifts happen if they do. The point is that when you feel that difference, the old lady visits her husband's grave a lot versus the old widow goes to the stone every day, and then make those kinds of choices aligned with your vision over the course of the project, that is when you successfully manifest an atmosphere. And I also want to be clear here, because we're focusing our attention at the level of the line and the word, that these aren't thesaurus changes. The old widow goes to the stone every day is a phrase full of very simple, common words. This isn't about choosing the words that are the most rare and arcane or the longest and the hardest words. Sometimes you might. Sometimes that weird-ass, obnoxious word <laughs> might be the right one. But in general, it's not about that. It's about choosing words that are specific. And then, okay, let's turn to spend a little time looking at the actual narrative here. So we have a married woman having an intense kind of all-consuming affair, which is not a new story. It's a tale as old as time, to quote anti-hero. And the fact that it's not a new story is noteworthy because sometimes writers, young writers or new writers, I mean, get hung up on the idea of writing something original or having a quote good or new idea when really nothing is new and that doesn't matter at all. It's completely irrelevant. What is relevant is whether that not new thing is written about in new, honest, moving, and specific ways. And here's one of the lines I want to look at to study how Taylor does this. Quote, your opal eyes are all I wish to see. And I noticed this line at first because writing about eye color is one of Taylor's classic moves. She does it in multiple songs across her entire catalog. But this instance is interesting to me because, for one, opal is not a color we, or at least I, traditionally associate with eyes. And then two, opal is notably opaque. It's milky. It's unclear. And contrast that with a line like, quote, do I really have to chart the constellations in his eyes? Which is another line in another Taylor Swift song that's also about cheating, apparently, which is the song High Infidelity. That line is all about clarity and translucence and unmarred, unobscured reflection. And so I think the use of opal here to describe someone's eyes, it's not necessarily referring to their color, but it's reinforcing a couple of things, one of which is the hiding and the sneaking that's inherent in a fair behavior. But it's also aligned with that sentiment of lack of clarity, which shows up throughout the song. And one line in particular is repeated twice, which is the line, quote, how's one to know? 
there's a sort of passivity there and also a fogginess and even I'd say a powerlessness. So that phrase, how's one to know, in fact, opens the song with this line, quote, how's one to know I'd meet you where the spirit meets the bones. And then it really kind of closes the narrative later with the line, quote, how's one to know I'd live and die for moments that we stole on begged and borrowed time. And this offers us a view of a woman who is overcome by something at its mercy, which is also echoed in multiple other lines and images, including, quote, it's a fire, it's a goddamn blaze in the dark, and you started it. It's a war, it's a goddamn fight of my life, and you started it. Which are lines that also underscore that this pleasure is shot through with so much pain and struggle and wrestling, all of which culminate with that central image and theme of the chorus. And I've saved this for last because I want to end on the piece de resistance of this writing, which is the imagery of the ivy growing on a house of stone as the representation of infidelity. I mean, give it the fuck up for Taylor Swift, y'all. Truly, with language and choices like these, we have no choice but to stand. This is what I was talking about earlier when I said that it doesn't matter if the idea is new. What's important is whether the expression of it is new and distinct. So there are a lot of reasons why this is so good, so let's look at a few of them. Firstly, it's aligned with the general mood. We've already mentioned that the ivy and the stone house contribute to the overall folklorish fairy tale atmosphere of the song. But then there's also the fact of the domesticity. She's choosing the ultimate domestic symbol, which is a house, and that house, the domestic image, represents her married life. And here, the house is being morphed by an outside force, the ivy. And you could call it beautiful, you could call it the natural world, and or you could call it an invasion. And you'd be right on all accounts. The tension there, that ambiguity, helps to make this image really dynamic because it allows multiple contradictory things to be true at once. And then what the image of the ivy, which of course represents the affair relationship, What that also offers is the built-in symbolism of a tangle, the way ivy grows can feel like a snarl. But then we also get roots inherent in the image of ivy. So that's where we get this line, quote, I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland. So we have again this helpless, powerless language. I can't stop you from doing this to me. I can't help but be overcome by this. Because a stone is not a hospitable place for a plant to grow, right? But what's one plant that can attach itself to stone and even flourish and multiply there? Ivy. Your ivy grows my house of stone and now I'm covered in you. Beautiful, amazing, thrilling, stunning, phenomenal. Taylor Swift. Well, my loves, thank you for being here to look at the song Ivy by Taylor Swift on this episode of the Art Wife Book Club Shorts Edition. We will be back next month on February 6th to talk about an incredible book that I'm obsessed with and so excited to discuss here. 
It's the 1995 novel called I Who Have Never Known Men by Jacqueline Hartman. And this is a bit of a genre shift for us because some people classify this book as science fiction, others call it mystery or thriller, but it's also deeply literary in style. So a really interesting one to examine. It's really special. I can't wait to reread it. And I look forward to talking it over with you next month. See you then. Thanks for joining the Artwife Book Club. This podcast is a project from Artwife, a digital literary and arts magazine publishing essays, short stories, visual art, and video art. Explore the magazine at artwifemag.com. See you next time.